Whoever thought making a baby could be so hard? Luckily, the fertility journey isn't meant to be traveled alone. Eloise Drain has helped hundreds of people build and grow their families over the last 15 years, and she's ready to share her insider knowledge and expertise with you. So grab a seat and let's talk fertility and alternative family building in the Fertility Cafe. Richard Vaughn is a parent via surrogacy and egg donation and is the founding principal of International Fertility Law Group, a law practice focused exclusively on assisted reproductive technologies or ART. He also chaired the American Bar Association ART Committee from 2013 to 2018, developing education for ART attorneys, model legislation for governance of U.S. ART providers, and guidelines for international surrogacy, parentage, and citizenship rights. He contributes his time, expertise, and leadership abilities in supporting ART advocacy organizations, including SEEDS, ASRM, and the Family Equality Council. He has presented at numerous legal and family building conferences around the world on television and radio shows. And in addition to a published book on developing an ART law practice, he has been published in numerous professional journals. In 2008, Rich and his husband became proud parents through egg donation and surrogacy of twin boys. All right. So, Mr. Rich, I have to start. And I know, I, I know that you're probably looking at me like, don't you dare. But every time I talk to this man, I do hit on him. <laughs> I do because he's, he's quite the handsome man. And I'm sure people have told you that millions of times. So um, you have to be used to it. But not only are you very handsome uh, in looks, but your personality, your character, your spirit. I love all of it. Well, thank you. It's it's quite a compliment and a great way to start uh, the session <laughs> <podcast>? today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and look, if 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 my overall appearance and demeanor can help someone feel more comfortable when talking about family building, then I'm all it's for so it. So be it. Absolutely, yeah. I agree yeah. wholeheartedly. It's already a tough subject, so you know, when you can at least enjoy what you're looking at while you're talking about it, it's it's all the better. So there you have it. Why not? Why not? I feel bad for us ugly people. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't you tell us a bit about your family building story? Sure, sure. So I have twins through egg donation and surrogacy. They are 12, about to turn 13. Ooh. Yeah, all kinds of fun there. Yes, um, yes, been there. Yeah. And so we, you know, we, my husband and I decided very early on in our relationship, we wanted children. We looked at surrogacy very early on and realized it was expensive. And so we spent our time saving and preparing and getting ready emotionally, mentally as well. And a few years uh, after we had had that first call, our first conversation, we started researching agencies and, um, the doctors and all that good stuff, talking to all of our friends who had been through it, which at that time weren't that many, mm-hmm. finding out what we could from our friends and looking online. And uh, we found our way to the doctor we eventually started working with and um, found a donor uh, at a different agency, a surrogate at a different agency, and then did what we all do mm-hmm. in this business. Um, uh, intended parents, at least, you have to talk to a lawyer. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, this is. Were a bit you of a an attorney into, at the time? I was. Yeah, I'd been an attorney at that point for 13 years or so mm-hmm. um, in other areas of law, and um, so I had an understanding of the law, but hadn't touched this at all. 
didn't yeah. know anything about it. And when yeah. I discovered this area, I was hooked. Yeah. Hooked. It was yep. immediately fascinating to me. Um, so that's what also was my segue into the industry. Yeah. Which is so many of us. I mean, you know, I started off as a egg donor, then to a gestational carrier, and then to, you know, oh, okay, now I have my agency and 13 years later, here we are. So yeah. I, I definitely, I definitely get that. But I also feel like when you do go through that experience, you can appreciate it more. And you oh, can 100%. relate to those intended parents and really be able to explain to them exactly what it is that they're not only going to experience, but feel. Oh, absolutely. I, you know, I have consults with new clients all the time and we talk about the law and mm -hmm. the legal process and the documentation and timeline and cost. But I always, always, always add in, look, I've been through this. Yeah. You can ask me anything. Yeah. I mean, who doesn't love to share their story, right? Yeah. So I'm an open book and I share my story with anyone who wants to ask. I don't offer it unless they want to ask, of course. of course, but it comes up a lot. People ask my personal experience all the time and it comes in handy, mm -hmm. especially when you hit road bumps in the process to know mm -hmm. that someone else has been there too is really um, comforting. Yeah, definitely. I, I wholeheartedly agree. So since you're an open book, I'm curious if you would share about your own personal surrogacy experience. Oh, yeah. So after, you know, getting information from our friends and a few online uh, websites uh, to, to find where to start, you know, we eventually um, found our way to an agency that we, we thought was going to be the answer to everything. It was an all-encompassing. They did egg donation and surrogacy. We went with a local agency, one that was local to us, thinking that would make a difference. And mm -hmm. uh, it really didn't. We ended up meeting them once. It was a lovely meeting, but we never had to go to their office again. Mm -hmm. uh, but as it turned out, you know, you start with the donor part first. And we just weren't able to find the donor that we were looking for. We didn't quite know what we were looking for at the beginning, but we weren't finding it there. So we branched out to a different agency. And we got lucky. We found our donor at the second agency we were looking. We've had some clients, of course, that, that look at lots and lots and lots mm -hmm. of places, but we were fortunate and found a, a, a donor who um, spoke to us, who resonated with us um, at this other uh, agency. And, you know, we went through the, the legal process with her as well and uh, decided that since our law firm, the one that I worked for at the time, was also going to be doing the legal work that we said, look, let's not pretend that we'll never look at your name and all the other information in the confidential legal file. So mm -hmm. we decided to broach the subject of being fully known with our donor. And that's how we proceeded with our donor. So our names are in the contract and so is hers. And we've never talked to her since, uh, but but it's it's still yes, there, it's there if we yeah. need to to yeah. have that that communication. Our kids are just now getting old enough to the point where they may start asking more questions about the mm -hmm. egg donor. Um, so we went through the the contract process with her, and then did our first retrieval. And it wasn't the best cycle. We got thirteen eggs the first time. Mm -hmm. um, my husband and I fertilized eleven, and by the day of the um, uh, well. Well, day five, I should say, because at that time we weren't doing frozen cycles. We were doing Ooh, fresh. Right. Right. So we also yeah. had to find our surrogate at roughly the same time and get That's them cycled right. and yes. ready at the same time. Right. I yeah. It's it. a, lo it. a lot of stress yeah. to coordinate yeah. those fresh cycles. Yes. But um, we got to day five with the first retrieval, and there were really only three embryos that were worth looking at, that were mm -hmm. worth uh, using, according to the doctor. And we also didn't do PGD. 
at that time. That time too, so, right? Yeah. So for, for anyone listening that doesn't know what that is, that's basically pre-implantation genetic diagnostics where you mm-hmm. can test the embryo. You biopsy one side of it and you get some chromosomal information. We didn't do that. It was sort of new and we thought kind of risky and expensive and mm-hmm. we, we just didn't do it. So we were kind of going on blind luck and our doctor's eyeball observation. He didn't give us much of a chance of success. Yeah. Um, another thing that was very different about our, our process is, again, because this was so many years ago, this was mm-hmm. done in 2007, um, and it was a fresh transfer. That's when I and started we, my journey, 2007. Yeah, yeah, and we didn't do the testing, and we weren't freezing, so we put all three in. The I had doctor, put four in mind the first Well, that's time. what happened the second time. <laughs> oh, God. So, yeah. So we didn't get lucky. We did not get pregnant after that transfer. And again, the doctor said he didn't really give us much of a chance anyway. Wow. Okay. Um, so we were at that sort of crossroad of trying to decide whether to, what to do, right? It didn't work. We didn't get pregnant. Um, everything on paper looked fine, but we didn't know, should we get a new donor? She was a first-time donor, young, everything perfect on paper, but it just didn't work. And so we decided after a lot of you know, soul-searching that maybe we would try again with her. Uh, and our cycle with her was her first cycle. So mm-hmm. it didn't turn out that well. A lot of people would say, yeah, well, you know, we, it didn't work. Let's not try her again. Right. We decided to try her again. Her grandmother had passed away just a couple of weeks before starting the first cycle. Mm-hmm. So we thought maybe there was some stress involved there. And she was driving up from San Diego to LA where our clinic was for her monitoring. And, you know, that, that gets, you know, yeah, exactly. So we thought, okay, well, let's have her monitored locally. So she doesn't have to do the driving. Yeah. Um, she'd had some break from the passing of her grandmother and we made a slight modification to her dosage uh, protocol and we got slightly better results the second time. We retrieved uh, 17 eggs on the second oh, retrieval. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And ended up with four embryos. Mm-hmm. So similar um, end results. Yeah. Also not considered to be great embryos at that time. Mm-hmm. And that was it. We didn't have any more money left. And it was sort of kind of a big decision, but we put all four in. Um, and again, no testing, no freezing, <gasps> you know, all that. So yeah, <laughs> kind of crazy. And <laughs> that would never yeah, happen today. No. So, so so I often will talk about that. We get lots of people now that talk about still wanting twins. Yes. Um, and you know, they know that everywhere they go, the doctors, the agencies, the lawyers, everyone's gonna tell them it's a bad idea, mm-hmm. there's too many risks. Mm-hmm. But I still have to I still feel like I need to share my story yes. and say, look, I we ended up getting lucky. Um, So, you know, just a fast forward, we ended up with with twins born at 38 weeks, perfectly Mm -hmm. healthy. But Mm -hmm. I've had a ton of clients Mm -hmm. with twins that were born Mm -hmm. super early um, with issues with the babies. We had a client together, remember? We do. Yeah, we did. Yeah. I was remembering that one today, thinking about it. Yeah. 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 Unfortunately. So luckily turned around and had a a happy ending after the fact. But um, yeah, that was, that was a crazy situation. Yeah. Yeah. So I, you know, I tell that story, um, but I also say a lot has changed sure. since then, Yeah. you know, with all the, the freezing that's done now to better time the transfer and the testing, which is done to better ensure viability, the success rates are much higher now. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I that, that's always my segue. Yes. And I think legal has gotten much better as well over the years because before it was nothing. You could easily find a gestational surrogacy agreement online. People print it out. 
dock it up. <laughs> and that's what people were used to use. No, seriously, I, yeah. I can give you names of people that I know. And it's just like, sure. and now to think about it, it's, it's mortifying. Like, oh my God, you don't want to do that. And, you know, I'm trying to scare people to literally to the inch of their life to tell them, please don't use a boilerplate template that you found online and think that it's okay to do that for your your agreement. Don't do that. Right. No, the courts are much more familiar with surrogacy cases these days. And when they're looking at these petitions for parentage, they're also looking at the contracts. They know what is consistent with the law. They know what is not consistent with the law. And it will be a real, um, it's a much more difficult case if you end up, you know, with a, a contract that you pulled off the internet. And, you know, back in 2005, uh, 2006, seven, when we went through this, um, there was only one state with a statute addressing surrogacy. That was Illinois. Mm-hmm. And now there are so many more states that now have surrogacy statutes. So it has evolved quite a bit. The yes. law has evolved yes. quite a bit in yes. this area. So with the, now the understanding, the knowledge and the expertise that you have, was, is there anything that you would have done differently for your own journey? Well, I probably, knowing what I know now, if I'd known it now and or known it then, rather, mm-hmm. you know the saying, whatever, however they say mm-hmm. it, I would probably have transferred less embryos. I probably would have tested the embryos. I mean, I wouldn't change anything because, you know, our twins are amazing. And right. Yeah, yeah. But I, I would have approached that part of it differently. Yeah. Um, you know, but other than that, everything else, I think, went really smoothly. We had a, a great surrogate who, um, you know, um, we, you know, I would say fell in love with right away. But we, we grew to love her and her husband was amazing from the very beginning. And um, we've stayed friends. Um, we don't we don't contact each other all the time, but we yeah. reach out maybe once or twice a year, and um, we had a great um, process with her, a great great experience. So, That's good. But yeah. and going back to legal, because why not? He's an attorney. Hello. Um, <laughs> so going back to speaking about law, what is or should I say why why is it important to work with a family law attorney and? not say, you know, one's cousin who's a real estate attorney? Well, this is a very niche area of the law, mm-hmm. number one. So it requires a lot of really specialized um, expertise. There are probably only about 300 plus lawyers in the world that do this area of law. So it is a very niche area. So knowing how these contracts are put together, why they're put together the way they are, will help a client you know, tremendously in their process and making it a smooth process. We have had cases where the other side has had an attorney that was their friend's real estate attorney or their bankruptcy attorney, and they, they're doing their best, but they really don't know what they're doing. And then you get involved in conversations about some of these really sensitive provisions mm-hmm. in the contract. Let's mm-hmm. talk about a surrogacy contract that deals with the issue of, of abortion and selective mm-hmm. reduction. You have an attorney that doesn't practice in this area advising you on this provision or, or worse, not really thinking much of it and skipping it altogether oh, yep, yep. in the contract review. So just you know, having you clients fully prepared on all issues is important enough. So that's, that's one reason why you would want an attorney well-versed in this area. But it goes beyond that. It goes beyond the, the contract. You know, in a surrogacy case, you have to be mindful of the end game. Like, mm-hmm. what do they need at the end? Now, our goal is always to make sure that the intended parents are the legal parents but we need to know how their birth certificate should be filled out. Mm-hmm. If it's a standard sort of domestic case, uh, 
it's pretty easy. You know, you put the parents on the birth certificate and that's it. But if it's an international intended parent or parents and they have multiple nationalities, there are many countries that take great issue with surrogacy and do not understand how anyone else can be the parent other than the surrogate who gave birth. So I'll give you an example. If you have a heterosexual couple from the Netherlands, so they're Dutch, using their own genetics, but they have a surrogate in the U.S. The intended mother cannot go on that birth certificate. If she, if they want the child to be recognized as Dutch back home, we have to put the surrogate on the birth certificate with the biological father. Then they go back home and they have to adopt under the Dutch system. And they can't even do that until two years later. And if you take, if you send them back with a birth certificate with the intended mother on it, they'll have more problems. It's crazy. So knowing things like that, those right. nuances, you right. know, from state to state, country to country, yeah. and knowing that at the very beginning is really important to making sure that they, again, have a smooth process and they're matched appropriately in a state that is legally suitable for them. And your your cousin Mort, the real estate attorney, <laughs> isn't going to know that. Yes, that's right. Right. And so which leads me to my next question. What's the red flag that parents should be aware of so that they avoid when working with, you know, when trying to select an attorney. Because the other problem too is you're an intended parent. Maybe you're trying to do it independently or you're just starting out and you want to find an attorney. Like where where, where do you even begin looking? Well, there's several ways you could find an attorney um, in this space. And you Mm -hmm. can start with the people that you're working with, your agency. Maybe your doctor, your IVF clinic will have some recommendations. There are resources online such as the uh, Quad A, the American Academy of Adoption and Art Attorneys. There are family law organizations in each state. The American Bar Association has an assisted reproduction legal group, which I actually chaired Mm -hmm. for a number of years. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's lots of different resources there. But you, you need to, I think, as you would with anyone, any major choice or decision that you have to make is maybe interview more than one. Mm -hmm. You can't make an informed decision about who you want to work with until you at least have two people to compare to. And you get a feel for their appreciation for this subject matter, their experience in this subject matter, Mm -hmm. um, and where they're licensed. You need to know what state law is going to govern your surrogacy. And then you have to pick an attorney who's licensed in that state or able to practice in that state. So. Those are some key parts of the decision-making process um, in terms of you know, making a decision and finding them. Um, but there are probably some other organizations online where you can find uh, references as well. Mm-hmm. So. What, what about the red flags? How can they... What are the red flags? You mean in terms of an attorney? Yes. P- picking an attorney? Even, even an attorney in, in our space. Because oh. let's face it, there's some that are not the greatest. So what is... Um, and, and that we could say for everything. Uh, yeah, I think this this is probably true of agencies and, and yes, doctors absolutely. as well. But I think you, you want someone who you want to ask them about their level of experience. How long have they been doing this? How many cases have they had? Um, so the more experience, the better. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's one thing. What's their professionalism like? Um, are they prompt in getting back to you? Do they give you clear answers? Um, or do they seem to know what they're talking about right away? Or do they have to say, well, I'll get back to you on that. Mm-hmm. Um, they should know right away. If they really practice in this area frequently, they will know the answer right away. 
and with anything, you know, if it sounds too good to be true, sometimes it is, <laughs> you know, so just be careful. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, yes. Yes. I, I, I don't want to cast aspersions, you know, and make stereotypes, but sometimes there are some lawyers out there, especially newer ones and younger ones who might charge less. Um, and that's attractive. But again, ask them about their experience level because getting an attorney for, for cheap might sound good at the beginning, but you want to make sure you're protected all the way through. Mm-hmm. I would also ask an attorney about their commitment to the client throughout the entire process. One thing we see frequently, and it's not to say that it's a bad thing, but it's something that the client needs to be aware of, is that the attorney will engage for a specific phase of the work only and then disengage. So let's say you have an attorney just for the contract and then the contract's done. Do you have an attorney still? Or are you without an attorney? So Mm -hmm. what if a problem crops up? Mm -hmm. Uh, Will that person be there? So that's a question to ask the attorney at the beginning when you're first interviewing with that attorney. Um, You know, what happens if we have an issue? Will you be there for us? Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Um, So talking about issues, unfortunately, there's happens to be issues in this industry. Like it seems like every other day, but there's... Always hurdles and things that we are trying to deal with and figure out and help families through. So, um, and then no, God, I can only imagine the stress that you were under under the COVID with all these international families trying to come into the country to get their children and surrogates having to take on the responsibility of um, keeping children uh, for their intended parents. Um, so, and I know it rocked our community. How do you think we um, as a community really can help change things to make things better for the intended parents that are really trying to, um, you know, do everything in their power to be able to have children? And there's always, you know, whether it's financial, whether it's, well, no one could have predicted COVID. So, you know, but I mean, we were having people that were begging and pleading to come into the country to get their children. Oh, well, that's a a lot all in one question. I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> I had to get I, it all out. I think, you know, intended parents, I think of intended parents as being in a vulnerable position from the beginning. They need all of us. They need the help of the surrogate, the donor, the parent, the attorney, the agency. And so sometimes they are, because they're in that vulnerable position, they believe things maybe that they shouldn't at first. So they should do their research be diligent about it. Take their time and not rush. I think that's one of the most, um, uh, the highest risk risk factors for being vulnerable is you want to rush through it because look, when they've gotten to the point where they need a surrogate, they've been trying for a while or they've been researching it for a long time and they're anxious and they want to move quickly, but slow down, you know, Mm -hmm. take your time and do it right because that will serve you well. And, you know, if you are careful and methodical at the beginning. Then when you hit a road bump, such as COVID or anything else, you're careful and methodical. You do your research, you don't panic, and you get through it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's sort of my approach to everything anyway. That's, mm-hmm. that's my training. Training as a lawyer, my training as a paramedic, you know, you, you, you don't freak out, you don't panic, you sit, you look, you, you look at all the information you have, and you make a well-informed decision. So that's, that's sort of a general approach to it. You know, we were able to get intended parents here from other countries. Every single one that we've that we needed to apply for, we got them approved to get here. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is doable, it is possible, but mm-hmm. it takes some planning and some planning in advance and being prepared and thinking it through. So how did you guys fear through COVID? Well, 
how, how do we fare in terms of the business? Through COVID. Or with, it, well, with no, clients? no, not in terms of business and clients. I mean, I know everybody was able to get here, but yeah. um, I mean, what do these clients have to go through? Oh, um, a, a ton of anxiety, a ton of anxiety. I was just reflecting today on a client who was trying to get here for the birth of his child right at the very beginning of COVID when literally everything shut down. Mm. And I was remembering how panicked he was and, you know, to the point where he was yelling and screaming at everyone. Um, And I was thinking, gosh, if I knew then what I know now, it would have been a much easier process for him. We eventually did get that case taken care of, but it was very stressful for him. Um, So clients have been through a lot, you know, when they're faced with the possibility of not being able to be here for the birth of their child um, and having, uh, to get through, you know, embassy approvals to be approved to get here. It, it's very stressful. So, you know, a lot of times, again, what a good experienced attorney can do is also be a counselor mm-hmm. and to, you know, advise. There's yeah. the there's the core legal work, but then yeah. there's the the, the hand holding, the, the empathy, human. the advising, yeah. the human element. I mean, yeah. at the core of this massive production of sure. surrogacy is a very human process. That's right. A human, a human endeavor here. So you got to be there with them. Yeah. Um, so that sort of stress um, came out in a number of ways, including, let's say you got them here for the birth. Then, then what? Can they get into the hospital? Mm-hmm. Can they get into the delivery room? Will mm-hmm. they be able to witness the birth of their own child? Mm-hmm. And then dealing with the hospital policies, you know, because those they are what they are, and you have to accept them for what they are, because yeah. they're trying to do a job of keeping the general public healthy, keeping everyone in the hospital healthy, keeping the baby healthy. Mm-hmm. But as you know, Mama Bear and Papa Bear, mm-hmm. who aren't going to be able to be there for the birth of their child, they could go spouting off and yelling and screaming at the hospital, which will get them absolutely nowhere. Mm-hmm. We've seen that happen a couple of times too. And so we have to step in and calm everyone down and do what we can to, to, you know, make the best of the situation. Yep. Um, So keeping people calm is is part of the job. Definitely. Well, and my next question, or starting with the comment more so than a question, obviously we all know surrogacy agencies are not regulated. And my thought is that for me, anyway, I do feel that there needs to be something. There needs to be something for the parents. There needs to be something for the children. There needs to be something for the surrogates. There needs to be, I mean, there needs to be something even for the professionals, for our protection as well. And I know you had a hand in helping to develop a, um, what was it? You tell me. <laughs> so, yeah, sure, sure, sure. Um, so when I was chair of the American Bar Association Assisted Reproduction Committee, um, we had a number of resolutions that were taken up through the ABA um, hierarchy, uh, bureaucracy really, uh, to be approved yeah. by the ABA as an ABA resolution. And one of those was a model act, model legislation, if you will, on the licensing and regulation of agencies, of ART agencies. Um, we we saw a gap in the process. You know, doctors are licensed, lawyers are licensed, psychologists are licensed, social workers are licensed, but the agencies were not licensed yep. or regulated in any way. And so that was a, a risk factor for intended parents, so a weak point in the process. So we, we, we got this model act passed by the ABA. So it sits there as model legislation for other states to adopt. Um, so far, only one has adopted it, and uh, in, in its own 
fashion. So in New York, uh, the state of New York recently passed a surrogacy-friendly bill. Mm -hmm. um, and as part of it, they now require agencies that are doing anything relating to a, a surrogacy in New York to be licensed. Mm -hmm. um, and so it requires some basic things such as, you know, they, they want to know about the, um, the owners. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they have to run criminal background checks yep. on the owners, credit checks credit on the check, owners. Yep. They, they are requiring insurance. Um, Insurance, of course, mm -hmm. you know, professional liability insurance mm -hmm. for the agency. Mm -hmm. uh, and it also requires that the agencies now put into writing right. some policies and procedures, yeah. documentation, like what yeah. are your conflict of interest policies? Yeah. Um, what are your policies regarding informed consent mm -hmm. for the surrogates, um, especially the surrogates? Mm -hmm. um, so I think this is the beginning of a new phase mm -hmm. um, in the in the field uh, because many agencies will eventually end up touching on some sort of New York case and they should get licensed. So, mm -hmm. um, so this is a, a, a good example of, of some positive development in the field. It's a pain in the butt, you know, yes. to get licensed, but it's yes, for the it greater is. it's for the greater good. It yes. is for the greater I good. I agree. Um, I do agree. There have also been some talks about whether agencies could um, in some way self-regulate and maybe come up with a, a trade organization or an accreditation process, which I think is a great idea. Um, you know, it's it's you know it's in the works, but uh, I don't know that a lot has been done. But it's it's a good concept and it's a conversation that needs to continue yeah. and to unfold. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So the the state by state surrogacy laws are often referred to as a patchwork quilt. Uh, there are currently no federal laws governing surrogacy. And do you think we'll at, at all ever see a federal surrogacy legislation? No, no, no. Family law is left to the states mm -hmm. to develop on their own. So it is definitely going to be a state by state issue. Um, and by patchwork, yes, I do agree that there is a patchwork. There are some states with legislation with mm -hmm. comprehensive statutes addressing surrogacy. There are some states with case law where the courts have had to handle a particular contested issue that was brought to the, the trial level court and then it was uh, appealed to the appellate level. Once you get to the appellate level, then it becomes a reported decision that can be researched and used as precedent for further future cases. Um, so there's some states that have case law. There are some states that have both Mm -hmm. case law and statutory uh, and statutory law. Mm -hmm. And then there are some states that have nothing. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the good news is that there are fewer and fewer states with nothing mm -hmm. and more and more states with either case law or statutory law or both. Mm -hmm. Okay. What changes or battles, I think, are you keeping your ear to the ground about right now in this industry? Oh, for me, the, the number one uh, thing to be looking out for for now and in the future is uh, embryo disposition. Oh, between, yes. Between the, the progenitors, as we say. So when, when people come together and they create embryos and they're stored in the clinic, maybe they've, they've had a child, maybe they haven't, but they've got stored genetic material. What happens to that genetic material when the couple splits up? Yep. 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 So. We actually, I just had um, a couple episodes ago, the ladies from Empower Donation on, and we were talking about just that and the importance of what that is going to do really to society as a whole, because it's not just in the U.S., it's worldwide. And what is that going to look like? So they're going to keep these embryos on ice forever? Like, you know, Right, right. It's it's a daunting 
topic to to address and um there's several different ways to approach the topic one is you know we've got all this genetic material that's being stored but are the the people who are the owners, the progenitors, are they communicating with the clinic mm -hmm. and keeping their address updated and paying their storage fees? Or are they not responding at all? And are these embryos now considered abandoned? Mm. And, and many of these clinic storage farms might even say, if we attempt to contact you after three or four times or five, whatever the number, then we're allowed to discard them. I don't know of a single clinic that actually would discard Do them. That. Yeah, I, I, I thought, yeah, of course, right? absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. So, so then we need to sort of turn to well, what else can we do with these embryos? You know, um, of course, if the parties aren't responding, you know, we need some statutory answer to this about what the clinics can do. But in between the progenitors themselves, if they have a dispute over who can use them, you know, you know people divorcing and, and one right. person wants to have a baby and the other person says, no, I don't want you to have a baby with my genetics. I don't agree to this anymore. Mm -hmm. um, so the issues there are, you know, what do the informed consent documents say at the clinic? Are they clearly written? If so, the courts will likely give those you know, effect, but a lot of them aren't written that well, um, and they could be really old documents, or they could be considered just you know, an expression of your wishes at that time, but we now need to know exactly what you both agree to now before we can allow anyone to use them. And so with such uncertainty over whether the informed consent documents will be given full effect, we really think that the, uh, the parties should be entering into a fully fleshed out embryo disposition agreement between them. Yep. Because the consent forms cover very little. They just yes. say, what do you want done in the event of death, in the event of divorce or dissolution? You know, very few things are, are spelled out. And it doesn't talk about inheritance purposes and who yep. can be a parent of any resulting child. So there's lots more that needs to be delved into, which you can really only at the moment delve into in an agreement between them, hopefully where both parties have representation right. Right. and it's a fully comprehensive contract where they have had legal counsel and then they sign it and then now we know this is an, a document we can rely on yep spell out who can do what with the embryos in the future so that's a big thing that i see uh, coming down yeah. pike yeah i wholeheartedly agree it's gonna keep you busy <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And the other issue there is, you know, look, if if somebody could use the embryos and the, if the other person doesn't want to be a parent anymore and they say, yeah, sure, go ahead, use right. the embryos. I just rights. don't, I don't want yeah. a, to be a parent. We don't have any legal protection for that status right now. So, right. If we could develop some statutory guidance on this issue that says, yes, if you agree to let your former girlfriend, boyfriend use the embryos and you don't want to be a parent, we can assure you through the law that you will not be saddled with responsibility, custody, support, any of that stuff. Right. Then we might be more free to use those embryos. But now flip side, what if that person changes their mind and now wants a relationship with that child? Well, it that needs to be clarified as well, right? Yeah. Both, both sides of that need to be super clear. That way, both sides are protected and it's all really clear. Mm, but somebody yeah. is going to come up with something to say somehow, some way they deserve whatever. Because <laughs> we live in the U.S. That's what we do. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. There's always, there's always something. Yep, yep. So, all right. So any final parting words you'd like to leave with us? Oh, goodness. Um, God, there's, there's a lot that I could say. Uh, <laughs> I, I would say, look, this this is uh, there's a lot of moving parts to these arrangements. 
um, for anyone that's listening and trying to decide whether to do it. It's absolutely worth it, you know, all your effort that you put into it. But remember, at the very core of this is a human uh, arrangement, a human procedure, or emotional endeavor, and to take your time, go in with your eyes wide open, get good counsel, get good advice from your doctor and your agencies, um, and know that the resulting children will be some of the most loved children out there. This is not an accident. It doesn't happen overnight. Um, and so, you know, everything that you're worried about will eventually culminate in a beautiful child and uh, a loved child. Awesome. Well, I couldn't have said it better myself. Well, thank you so much, sir. <laughs> trying to do the southern accent. I can't. I <laughs> um, so where can our listeners reach you? So we can be found online at www.if, as in Frank, lg.net. All right, perfect. And we'll also put it in our show notes. So thank you so much, Mr. Rich. It was a pleasure. My pleasure. Right. Good to see you. Like, yes, yes, absolutely. Because it's been like, yeah, it's definitely been forever. Well, last year doesn't count. We have to erase that from, right. from, <laughs> from everything count. and yeah. just start over. But even before that, it's been a minute, so. Yes. I hope you found this discussion helpful as you weigh your next steps. You can follow Fertility Cafe on Instagram and Facebook channel Family Inceptions. If you haven't yet, go to your listening platform of choice and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. We'd also love you to share Fertility Cafe with friends and family members who would benefit from the information shared. Join us next week for another conversation on modern family building. Thank you so much for joining me today. Remember, love has no limits. Neither should parenthood. Thank you for joining us in the Fertility Cafe. Whether you're an intended parent, a woman considering egg donation, thinking of becoming a surrogate yourself, or a friend or family member of someone dealing with infertility, we're here to help. Visit our website, thefertilitycafe.com, for resources on fertility, alternative family building, and making this journey your own.